Welcome to the Frank Mink Show. My name is David Goldsmith. A lot of people call me Goldie. There's a lot of Daves in the world. And today we're going to meet Frank Mink. Why are we going to meet Frank Mink? Well, it's an important time in American and human history for someone like Frank Mink to emerge on the podcast scene, and I'm really glad to be a part of it. It's not every day that someone like myself goes in for a bowl of clam chowder and finds himself meeting an inspiration, Frank Mink. Frank Mink is a former neo-Nazi white supremacist skinhead who subsequently becomes a convict. He is a recovering addict. He has now reformed himself from the neo-Nazi white skinhead hateful movement, has become quite in touch with his religious and spiritual side, and has turned into a political and human rights activist, practicing member of the Jewish faith. That in itself is a long story. Mm-hmm. And who am I? I'm the guy that met him at the Chowder Barge in Wilmington, California, where he served me a bowl of chowder. And when I asked him what was in it, he explained that he had never tried it. And I asked him why, and he said, I can't, I'm kosher. Now, as a half-Jew myself, I will say that when I noticed that this gentleman was covered in tattoos and definitely did not look like a practicing kosher Jew, I had to know more, and a friendship ensued. And that friendship has led to us here today. The Frank Mink Show, a podcast that's dedicated to meet and discuss and focus on some of society's most interesting reformers, activists, political, religious, and social figures as we navigate the world of reform and redemption. I introduce to the entire world via your new show, Frank, the Frank Mink Show. Ladies and gentlemen, Frank Mink. Well, thank you, and thank you for putting this team together. To um, This show has a purpose and a meaning, and... Uh, it isn't just to talk crazy and to go over just my life. Uh, my life can add to people that we're going to have on this show. It's going to maybe add some depth into why people become activists and also why people get into to some bullshit in their life. I mean, it's very easy for when people are low self-esteem, low self-worth, uh, to get into things that oh, most of the world go, why the fuck did they get into Well, that? yeah, I mean, that's my first question. For me... I know the answer, but I think it's important we share on your show. Right. Frank Mink, former white supremacist, skinhead, neo-Nazi gang member. What the fuck? Yeah. What happened? You know, when you come from where I come from, uh, very, you know, drug addict, neglectful parents, you know, you get into things. You get into anything that will, will take you in and, and give you purpose and give you meaning. Because I had none of those things growing up, and I was full of fear. And that was something that I had to deal with later on in life when I really looked back on things. Was as tough as I wanted to be, coming from the streets of South Philly, blah, blah, blah. Look, I was full of fear. Yeah. After my stepdad moved in and started being abusive to me, I really stopped growing. I, wait, so you, you grew up in South Philly? South Philadelphia. Your parents are drug addicts, alcoholics. Mm-hmm. They're not providing the support system that a kid needs growing up. Right. And my parent, my, my real parents separated when I was a baby. So my dad lived in a different neighborhood, and I barely got to see the guy growing up. Mm, great. Loved the guy. Thought he was, you know, from everything I'd ever heard and seen around him, he was a super tough, street thug, hard nose, knock you out type guy. And like a Rocky Balboa. In many ways, kind of the security you're looking for. Yeah. Yeah. And then he just was never around. So, uh, you know, eventually I did get to move in with him when I was 13. And by that time, I was so damaged. And uh, he didn't give me the life I wanted or one I needed, I thought. And uh, he basically hung out at a bar where he sold drugs. And uh, I barely seen the guy 
put me in an all-black school, mm. which was not, uh, you know, that's one of the things that really made me start to look at race was when I was 13, I go to an all-black school and, and scared a little white kid who had a fist fight all the time. Wow. I mean, it was, there was days, you know, I wouldn't go to school sometimes thinking, man, I hope I get that girl's number or I hope I pass that test. I thought, man, I hope if I get in a fight today, it's just one-on-one and not five-on-one. That's your hope. That was my hope going to school every day. Obviously, that environment leads you to find some sort of comfort and unity in a group. Right. And that's why when, the, when, these, when I start first start messing around and hanging around these neo-Nazis, they would say things that, as a 13-year-old, I had no fucking clue what they're talking about. They would say multiracial society doesn't work. What the fuck? What's that mean? Yeah. But when they start talking about blacks and whites don't get along, I'm like... Click. Yeah. yeah. And now these guys that are talking to me now, they live in the farms. They don't, they, they, they see Amish the, people. The skinheads. The skinheads, the neo-Nazis. They see Amish people. They don't see black people. I come around, and now these guys would talk to me, these neo-Nazi guys would want to talk to me about what it's like really growing up in black neighborhoods or even in the urban area. They were all farm kids, the first neo-Nazis I met. So to them, I, I was this oddball, but I was also like the urban expert, mm-hmm. even at 13. So you had a purpose for them. Absolutely. So they served a purpose in protecting you right. and giving you sort of the muscle you weren't able to build on your own without parents that gave a shit about you. Yeah. So this group, the neo-Nazi group, that you align yourself with, and they aligned with you because you you brought to the table your urban perspective that they were fighting so hard against that they didn't really know too much about. Right. And and what they they keep you safe, they protect you. Like, is it a gang? Well, what? You know, I could tell you the night that I most felt right with them was a night that we all went to a concert hall in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And there's all these other neo-Nazis showing up that I don't know. But my cousin and his friends know them all. Okay. So they're all gathering. And my, I still have hair at the time. I'm not shaved, bald. I, I have a little bit of a, uh, a, a mohawk-type haircut going on. I had it kind of going on as a punk rock sure. kid. You know, well, going, you had to be tough. You had to protect yourself. I think at the time they called it a teardrop haircut was what it's called. But anyway, so I have this teardrop haircut. And I'm hanging out with all these neo-Nazis who were all shaved, bald. Mm-hmm. And the way the people were inside that club that were so, they were so afraid of them. And mm. you've seen it. And I, I remember seeing it in their eyes. Like they would look, they come in the club and they see all these neo-Nazis on one side of the club. And you just see this look and this fear of getting away. And I know that fear. And if for once, it's not inside me. They're scared of you. They're scared of me. Even though they're not really scared of me. But I'm a little. It's your group. Yeah. They're scared of So you want to join. Yeah. I mean, what is there was, it was such a high. I remember, and I remember always wanting to feel that. Sure. From that day on. Why wouldn't you? And and that night when they offered for the older guys to shave my head when we got done out of that concert hall, because they went to an after party, and I go there, and one of the older guys says to me, when are you going to shave the shit off your head? I was like, I'll do it now. Wow. And and every guy. has got chills. And every guy that was there that night, they had clippers. Every guy that was standing around took turns doing one row of my hair. That's like an initiation. Yeah. I mean, it was, you know, it wasn't a set thing. Yeah, yeah, You yeah. know, it just, it just the way it happened. And so it felt so good. Your head's shorn, and yeah. you're now part of this group that others fear. Mm-hmm. You're now in a position of power you've never been in. Right. And so what does that lead to for you? Again, I wanted to know what the adults know in this world. Got they it. left me to fend for myself. One of the crazy things is when I was a kid, I grew up, I heard people say things like, uh, oh, you know, don't, 
Johnny will Jew you or uh, why, you know, the Jews always pick up the penny. And I remember when I was a kid, I didn't get this. I didn't get the joke. Mm-hmm. I never got the stupid joke. And I remember I asked my uncle one time, I said, why is that so funny? Whenever you go to the store and you don't get the right change, you go, well, Johnny always tries to Jew everybody and everyone laughs. So he said, why? And he starts to tell me, well, Jews are notorious for money. And, and he stopped himself and he goes, because he's seen I wasn't getting it. Yeah, sure. And he goes, you'll get it when you're older, Frank. You'll get mm-hmm. that joke when you're older. Within the first month of me becoming a neo-Nazi, I'm at this little get-together. This is the second time now. We're at this uh, place where we're going to go listen to preachers, and, and uh, they preach out of the Bible how to hate. And while we're there, this guy starts to talk about how the Jews secretly run the Federal Reserve, mm. right? And they siphon off money from this government to give to Israel so they can start the next world war. Well, in the time of him talking about the Jews and the money... I got the fucking joke. And you know what the adults know. I know what they know. And I remember feeling very powerful that wow. day. Wow. So you're saying, I mean, from what I'm, I'm picking up what you're laying down. Thank you. You're saying that this group of hate preys on insecure fear-based people. Right. And then fortifies them with a false sense of security in hate. Like, I believe this shit. So all the negative is absorbed by what you think is positive. Absolutely. I think I'm, I'm standing up for the white race that is being taken over and blah, 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 blah. You know how hard that is for me to hear as a white Joe. Right. <laughs> I mean, where was you at 16? Where was you at high school? I was on the mean streets of Beverly Hills, sad at my dad. <laughs> right, right. I mean, right. I mean it's, it's a total... But it, it, What's interesting is for me, I relate. Mm-hmm. I don't relate. I get you. But I relate to, to pieces, right? So I grew up in Los Angeles. My, my mom was a producer and an actress and a former TV personality. My dad is an actor. Uh, you know, I, I had famous people over for dinner all the time and dinner parties. And I, I didn't grow up. I was an actor as a kid. Um, but, you know, it's just like you wanted your parents to sort of make you feel like you belonged. Mm-hmm. I wanted the exact same thing. And I didn't have it. But instead of like bashing people's heads in and recruiting a bunch of people to do it with me, I got into doing comedy and I got into doing acting and expressing myself because I didn't have an outlet. Both very similar. Right. I think that's why we gravitate towards one another is that we kind of have the same story. Yeah. Um, you know, my story is, is interesting, but your story is fascinating. And, you know, I appreciate you sharing this with everyone, but I also appreciate everyone tuning in to listen to it because it's getting the knowledge of why does someone become a white supremacist skinhead neo-Nazi? Why does someone commit atrocities? Well, you just summed it up. Yeah. You didn't do it to hurt people. You did it to feel better about yourself yep. because it's a cycle. It's a negative sort of self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm-hmm. This is an incredible thing for me to hear because I've been, I grew up a fear, fearful little dude. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I'm scared of everything. Right. And, and just as you were. Right. But I took that fear and sort of made sure nothing bad would happen by basically cordoning myself off. You know, where you at, you did the opposite. You were the sledgehammer. You yeah. said, fuck it, nothing's going to hurt me because I'm going to surround myself with other sledgehammers. Yeah. So it's, I get it. I'm kind of jealous. I'm like, man, I, I should have thought of that. You right. know what I mean? And that's recruiting. When I recruit, and I mostly only recruited boys, right? Girls just come along with the bad boy image. You get the girls, right? Sure, I, 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 didn't, I, just, I didn't. I also didn't have that. Yeah. <laughs> like, I didn't, I couldn't fathom what women, th- I still don't know what women think. I mean, I'm, Well, like, that's a different podcast. We'll tune yeah. into that next week. These groups... What they, they do the greatest bait and switch. You know, everyone knows what the bait and switch is. I promise you you'll get this in exchange for this. Sure. Right? And then when you get it, you don't get what you're supposed to get. 100%. So now they tell me that I'm going to learn how to be proud of my heritage to be part of this group. I'm going to be taught to be proud of my heritage. You're going to become a real American. Yes. And when I started going to these meetings and get-togethers, 
Now, I don't notice this then. I only noticed it later on when I look back on it. The bait and switches, we never talk about our heritage. We always talk about everyone else's heritage and how they're fucking us over sure. and how they're ruining our country. It's the greatest bait and switch. They took this false pride that I wanted to have and just turned it into hate for others. Got it. So it's just a big bait and switch. Okay, so you're so you're you're deep in it. You're you're fully immersed. I'm in. You're in. Seventeen years old. Where where are you at? Um, I had worked as an actor on a television show. Um, I got nominated for an Emmy when I was fifteen, which changes the trajectory of a person's life. Okay. Uh, so at seventeen, I was on the tail end of that, leading to virtually nothing. All right. Um, I had emancipated myself from my parents because I hated them and they wouldn't let me have what I wanted. Okay. And so um, I got a lawyer and I got all my acting money uh, that I had made as a, a young a, a child actor. Uh, there's a, something called the Jackie Coogan Law, which protects young actors, and, and so their parents can't steal from them. So I got a lawyer so I could get that account unfrozen. Yeah. <laughs> I was supposed to get it when I was 18, but I was able to get it at 16. So at 17, to answer your question, I'd gone through all that money, okay. and uh, I needed to get a job, and I had no skills, and I was just about ready to finish high school, um, and I was a pretty lost dude. All right. And so... And you? 17, I find myself in an adult maximum security prison. At Holy 17 years crap. old. Crap. What'd you do? So I kidnapped a man who was uh, a couple years older than me. So when I say kidnapped, I don't even think it was a child. Guy was 19. I was 17. Not that anyone deserves what I'm doing. This isn't the first time I've done this. Mm -hmm. uh, kidnapped people, hold them for ransom. And the, these were all people that were part of the game, right? I, we didn't just go out and randomly pick people, right? These were. This guy was a left winger who kind of was a left wing... Uh, part of a group called SHARP, S-H-A-R-P, Skinheads Against Racial Prejudice. So they're the left-wing skinheads. Wow. The liberals. The liberals are the skinheads. And they are. They're very, very anti-fascist, very anti-racist. Well, their little head guy of the little regent we lived in, he lived in our town, and he was friends with a lot of these skater kids, right? They all grew up in the same little scene in Springfield, Illinois. And I kind of just got, I kind of got sick of this guy because... He was talking about how all, all skinheads don't have to be racist, and I'm recruiting now. I'm fucking mad recruiting all these kids, and now this guy might come in and cherry-pick some of my kids off. Inside my lip, I have a tattoo that says Sharp Killer. I mean, it's how bad I hated this fucking organization, and now this guy's kind of buddy-buddy with us. Not much longer. So on Christmas Eve, we called him up, told him to come over, having a Christmas party that he was more than welcome to, you know, peace be peace. And he showed up and there was no Christmas. And when we called him, I had my friends, the two guys I'm going to kidnap this guy with, I had them in the background yelling and screaming. We had music playing, faking like there's a party. You lured him in. Yeah. I'm like, come on over. Comes over. As soon as he comes over, he sees it's not a party. I bring him in a back room. I said, I got to talk to him about something. And then we pulled a gun on him. Holy shit. He said, you ain't going nowhere. And you're going to give us this money. Literally tortured this man. We, we let him go on Christmas. There, there's rules to the game and kidnapping. You have, uh, you have about a four-hour four time frame to get your ransom. If you don't, you dramatically drop the price of the ransom to right. get this dude out of your fucking... Right. Out of Is your, it like a time limit that becomes a different crime or something? Um, well, it's going to become a murder pretty soon. Oh, God. So that's where you got to like... So we kidnapped this guy. We're holding him. They're not going to get the ransom. No one's Beating fucking, the crap out of beat, him. Pistol whipping him, kicking him in the face beating him nonstop all night long, taking turns beating him. I videotaped it because I wanted to show to all these new recruits who kind of thought this guy was kind of cool that he ain't fucking cool. He ain't shit. He isn't shit. 
You're the tougher gang. You're the bigger asshole. Sorry. Mm -hmm. You really are. Uh, don't, don't, don't hurt me. No, no. Wait a second. You don't get like an award for this. What do you get? Reputation and ego. And jail time. Well, I get jail time. <laughs> oh, yeah, that part. That part. That kind of hurt. So because was, of this guy, you get convicted for kidnapping and attempted murder? Uh, just uh, at kidnapping and aggravated unlawful restraint. Since we didn't go to his home and remove him and bring him to our home, and we tricked him to come to our house, yes, loophole, it got us loophole, a loophole, loophole. Yeah, it got us a fucking lighter sentence. So it only got me three to five years. Damn. Yeah. Only. Only. Just for the record, folks, ladies and gentlemen listening, uh, if I were to get arrested on a jaywalking charge, uh, I don't know that I'd pull through. I'll be honest with you. I'd be a complete disaster. I'd be sobbing in the back of the squad car. And the moment I got into whatever lockup there would be, uh, you know, I'm sure I would be instantly someone's wife. So, okay, keep going. Um, <clears throat> they told me there, like, you're being charged as an adult. Like, no oh, that's more. That's right, you're 17. Yeah, so no more fucking around with you. You want to, you know, they, they knew everything. And by that time, all the recruits that I'd showed the video to, some of them had leaked it to the police. Wow. So they knew. And they had a copy of the video of me. Oh. Guy. So my trial was not going to be very well because I have a big swastika on my neck. I have a tattoo on top of my head that says made in Philly. How am I going to tell a jury of my that's peers? That's not me. Yeah, that's not me. That's right. not me. <laughs> Oops. So I plea bargained. And uh, from the county jail, I got sent upstate prison. And one of the first prisons I go to, this is where you know they're not playing with me, is with John Wayne Gacy. No way. That's the same prison I go to. It's just amazing that one of the people that I'm so excited to be in my life is you with mm. this story. <laughs> you know, and it's not because of this. Mm -hmm. It's who you are now. Right. Which is why we're doing the podcast. Right. You know what I mean? Yes. But just to know that you, this guy sitting next to me is like my biggest fear. <laughs> really? Right, right, right. Be, but but it, which, which even I'm, my, I'm my own biggest fear. Well, of course. And, I am. And I can't wait to talk about that because, again, another incredibly relatable and important element in all of this is your path to recovery not just from substance mm -hmm. but also the sub substance of hate and fear and self-loathing and mm -hmm. lowest self-esteem and all those things that we all suffer from right i mean your story is everyone's story in a sort of extreme different extreme, extreme way. way yeah absolutely my my ego i had such a broken ego that if you tread on my ego or real or fucking imaginary right you can i can imagine that you fucking stepped on my ego i lashed out violently all the time because I didn't know how I had no self-esteem and I didn't know how to react so yeah that's how I get so you're point. in prison tried as an adult you're 17 are you just a mess I'm a mess absolutely I'm a but, mess I mean are you scared to death crying yourself to sleep every night no no how, how, why not um you know I, I, I had enough allies in prison in the in the joint as they oh, say oh yeah uh, so my first days in prison especially when I got sent upstate I'm getting letters, like what they call kites in prison. Kites is a, a kite means a letter from a prisoner to a prisoner. It also comes um, what they would say they give you a supply box for, for when you first get in there, mm -hmm. right? Because you have to go through intake, which takes like two weeks. You got to stay in these certain little cell blocks away from general population. I'm getting uh, supply boxes with letters from all these white gangs that know, in, in the prison. that know I'm there. Like I was a little celebrity. I had a TV show. They all knew me. Wow. So these biker gangs, all of them, they're sending me over boxes. Now, guards, the guards are handing me shoe boxes. They're like, hey, so-and-so from cell block seven sent, or cell block six or whatever sent this over to you. And I would open up the shoe box. There would be joints in there. There would be deodorant, toothpaste, everything you're going to fucking need. 
everything you're going to need for the so next you, year. So you, you, you walked into a Hilton. Yeah, I walked in and knowing, and they would come down and visit me and come into our cell block because they, like certain gang members and certain high-ranking people, have the ability just to walk down and get through certain parts. And they would come down and, and like, they weren't allowed on our cell block. They would come to the door of our main long cell block and they would knock on a thing and they would tell the other inmate, yo, go get Frank. And now all these other inmates that are new, too, are running to my cell. They're like, hey, uh, the bikers are down there. They want to talk to you. And they would be scared, you know. They were like, because these bikers weren't, no, like, go get Frank. Right, or right. whatever they would call me then. And so <clears throat> I would come down and walk down to the door, and a guard would be standing there for a second. And as soon as we had to talk, the guard would walk away and let us talk. And they'd be like, hey, and this is, I mean, these are exact conversations. They would, Frank, when you get out of here, and they would always say this, keep your mouth shut. Don't fucking say shit. But when they do your intake, you say, I want to be in cell block six. And we have a cell, we have an empty cell with a, you know, a single man cell with a, a double bed who's about to be filled, and you're going to fill it. So you're going to go to cell block six, cell C11, make sure you tell them that, and they're going to put you there. And did they? Uh, absolutely, they did. Wow. I and would not have gotten that treatment. Yeah, yeah. I know it. Right. I and mean, even all the young inmates that were in my cell block in that, what they call the intake cell block, would always be like, damn. I mean, I remember them coming and be like, who the fuck are you? Like, how come these dudes are coming in? Because these guys would all know, like, Scooter was this, the main biker fucking Neanderthal. Just He ran the shit. He would come and visit me every couple of days, make sure I was okay. And I didn't know him. He just happened to know people that knew me on the streets. Wow. So I, was, I went in the prison not being like, oh, my God. Like, I knew that I was okay. I didn't worry about the rape shit and none of that shit. And I'm a small, good-looking little white dude. And I not once did I ever think, I'm going to be raped. Nothing. I just, wow. I don't know, you know, by the grace of God. By the grace of God, I had that, that protection in there. Yeah. And I did. And for the whole time I was in prison, from I was 17, 18, until I, was, I got out right before I was, right when I was turning 19, I got out. Never once did I have any of the fears that other people have. Well, there's, there's a lot to unpack. Yes. There's a lot to unpack. <clears throat> so I, I, I just want to, for, for the sake of getting us to where we're going. Let's go. Um, so you're in prison. You're protected. Does anything change for you there? I mean, do you get a different perspective, at least, in that environment? Or are you just surrounded by what you were surrounded with on the outside and you come out the same guy? No. You know, I think, no, things changed. There was definitely a pivot here. Before we get too deep into your past, one of the things that's really important for me to make sure is very clear that your past and your present have collided into the situation that we're in now mm -hmm. where you are an activist, you are an outspoken, passionate man, and you have done a lot of good. But from that has also come risk. And in many ways, there are different factions of your past and present that would love to see you caused harm. Yes. Can you, can you explain to me? Like, so, I mean, I can imagine that the neo-Nazi movement just isn't a huge fan of you these days, which is probably pretty dangerous for you, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I have received death threats. And uh, if you look this up, as I, I, I spoke in front of Congress in, in uh, September of 2020 about friends of mine that were neo-Nazis who we were told through the years when I was a neo-Nazi to get ready to become police officers. In fact, we even had a band called the Arresting Officers, which was a neo-Nazi band. Unbelievable. And when I testified in front of Congress and gave names, positions, and what police departments these people were in, and then my apartment got broken into and not ransacked, but someone went through my shit, one day I was leaving a protest, and as I was leaving, this cop like, was purposely 
pushing his car right next to me and staring at me and giving me his dirty looks, and I'm not one to back down. I said, what the fuck, man? He gets out of the car, says my name. What the fuck's up with you, Frank? Damn. This is in Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. What the fuck's up with you, Frank? And I was like, I said something. I said, uh, yeah, I'm just, he said, what are you doing here? I said, I'm just trying to get our Fourth Amendment back. He says, don't worry, when this is over, Frank, you're going to see what our Second Amendment means to us. No way. Yeah. I got, and I got a bunch of this on video. It says he's going to, they're going to blow my brains out. Now, on top of that, it was that day or the next day I'm leaving another protest because at the time we were protesting three times a day downtown. It was like a set times every day. I'm walking home and uh, realize I'm being trailed by an unmarked car. And uh, You mean I, the good guys are following you? Yeah. For being a good guy? Yeah. They're following me. Later on that day, someone at my apartment building said there was some men at my door. Wow. Um, yeah, and then I just noticed a couple other times just being trailed. And again, my apartment, you know, when they broke into my apartment, I had set booby traps in my apartment, not to hurt anyone, just so that I knew somebody was in my place. Mm -hmm. I had like four or five of them set up. Every one of them was off. Wow. Every one of them. So it's safe to say that the work that you're doing now, which is positive, which is appropriate, which is helpful to the momentum of evolution on planet Earth, mm -hmm. It's kind of dangerous for you. It, it is dangerous, but I, I'm not a martyr, and I don't want to be a martyr, and I don't want to be looked at as a martyr. I want to be alive. I want to be with my children. I want to do, I want to live a good, long life. But I feel, and I also have heard, that my life will end with a bullet in my head. It's real, and uh, it, it is sad, because here's the thing with me. I use the First Amendment so I can be an activist, not a terrorist. Right. So I follow the rules. I follow the laws. That was something I didn't do before mm -hmm. for a long time. I, just didn't, I never followed the rules. And I'm following the rules because the First Amendment and our Bill of Rights allows for us to be activists, not terrorists. But to know that the, my activism is being met with terrorism, mm -hmm. it's just part of the game. And... Uh, I'm not going to stop. Good for you, Frank. And I'm here to support you, and I'll try to take the bullet for you. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I hope they're not a good yeah. shot. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's something you have to deal with. Um, and, 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 again, I know that I'm on the right side. This isn't, again, to abolish police or to harm police. We really just need some real culture changes in our police and it comes with real police reform and they are just again would they rather be respected or would they rather be feared and i think a lot of times right now police would rather be feared than respected and i we're just want to try to change that i i want to get it to that point i want to get it to where people don't look at cops and go oh, i don't want i want people to look at cops and go they'll come and save my life not they're going to pull me over and fucking pull me out of my car and put a gun at me, especially black people and black women. They pull people out of cars and pull guns on them in front of their fucking children because of the culture of policing. And that's all we want to change. And if that's what's going to get me a bullet in my head, so be it. But I don't want that to happen. I don't want it to happen. And none of us want to either. So we got your back, Frank, and we appreciate you doing the work you do. You're a superstar as far as I'm concerned. Thank you. And I hope to shed some light on you and others about you and this journey.
Um, we really wanna, we wanna expand upon this. This is a joint venture between you and I and Earth. And this is not a show about Frank. This is not a show about me. This is a show about the cause of redemption, reform, activism, and change, and ultimately evolution. And we would like all of you to join us on that journey. And forgive me. Forgive me for not having said that. Yes, okay. All right. So that's the Frank Meek Show. It's the beginning of the beginning. And uh, we want to share all of this with you and much, much more on future episodes. Check out our website, frankmeekshow.com, and we will talk to you soon.